From the colorectal surgery practice at the Brigham's Hospital and associated with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, welcome to the Colon and Rectal Cancer Center podcast with Dr. Ronald Bleday and Dr. Jeffrey Meyerhart. This is Ronald Bleday. And this is Jeffrey Meyerhart. Join us as we take you through real cases and real decisions that we make every day in the care of colon and rectal cancer patients. I'm Jeff Meyerhart. I'm a medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber, uh, specialized in GI cancers, including colon and rectal cancer. And this is Ron Bladet. I'm a colorectal surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and also a consultant for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Colorectal Clinic. And the topic for today is preoperative imaging for rectal cancer. We are here today with Michael Rosenthal. I'm Michael Rosenthal. I'm a radiologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and I specialize in the imaging of GI cancers. So we've had over the past uh, six, eight weeks a conference where we've talked about several patients that have had, I would say, equivocal or a little bit confusing imaging. And as we know, the imaging in rectal cancer it drives so much of our decision-making. And in particular, we wanted to talk today about um, looking at the T-stage and what the best way is to see how we can determine T-stage, but more importantly, how can we determine whether a node is positive? Is it by location, size, and so on? All right, so we'll move on to the next patient. This is a 73-year-old woman who began having rectal bleeding in the spring of 2015. She also actually had a rectal exam and some, some screening about three years before, uh, and, quote, nothing was found. She was felt to have a hemorrhoid at that time. Uh, she didn't have any pain. The bleeding stopped. Again, a colonoscopy in 2013, which was reportedly normal. Well, when she had more rectal bleeding, she saw a different primary care doctor who felt the mass was sent for a colonoscopy and was found to have a, a lesion in the anal canal, what they thought first was HPV, but ended up being a poorly differentiated carcinoma with focal mucinous features. They took it out, and on exam now, the residual is just a, a little bit of a, a raw surface, about less than a centimeter in diameter, in the anal canal. And then she uh, basically had uh, imaging. This is a CT scan that was done uh, in early January, and on CT, we generally don't see lesions of the anal canal uh, very well. This is the general area of the tumor. Uh, slightly above that, we do see now within the low rectum, just above the sphincter, uh, we see this small nodular outpouching here along the uh, surface along around 2 o'clock. And then we also see a left internal iliac lymph node um, here, which measured about 8 millimeters in short axis and was concerning patient went on to have an MRI, and on the MRI we see some abnormality in the anal canal uh, here between about 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock with some uh, abnormality of the inner sphincter, and going slightly higher we again see this little nodular outpouching. This is probably a small lymph node that's really in very close proximity to the low rectum have another mesorectal lymph node here, and then we see this larger lymph node um, here in the internal iliac chain. We can see it's behind the mesorectal fascia um, along with some of these internal iliac branch vessels. We also had a PET-CT that helped with the last bit of this. 
On the pet, you can see the anal lesion. Um, so overall, I would be concerned that that left internal iliac node is a, a real node, which would certainly be considered a regional lymph node by AJCC for a cancer in the anal uh, distribution. So this has been one of the things that, um, if you go back to the original 1935 paper, which I have copies of and which we reviewed electronically, uh, there really was not drainage from rectal cancers into the iliac nodes because, they, you, again, they don't, the tumor doesn't spread down into the systemic and then up the iliac chain. When you look at low rectal cancers, there's, the Japanese have been, you know, they send usually one of their residents to dissect every node and all these uh, uh, autopsies, and they get these uh, amazing studies where uh, they've looked at all the lymph nodes on distal and mid-rectal cancers. And I think one of the distal rectal cancers, about 14% of the time will send uh, nodes to the obturator, basically iliac change, but right near, uh, right near the uh, obturator canal. So when we see these iliac nodes, particularly with mid-rectal cancers, less with anal ones, I'm always skeptical as to whether they're positive or not. Because so I, I, I just don't think the, that anatomically the, the lymph drainage gets there. Um, so I think this is a, a really interesting issue, and uh, I think it's a challenging one for a variety of reasons. So with that 1935 um, paper, which we sent around earlier, basically they were doing uh, APRs and then very meticulously uh, mapping and dissecting the specimens and labeling all of the lymph nodes and such. Uh, I think that there may have been a little bit of a selection bias on the T-stage side and that these would have all been palpable, um, very symptomatic lesions uh, and may not have been enriched towards the kind of nodal distribution uh, disease that we see now with modern imaging techniques. We recently did a, a paper on the difference in anal and rectal um, imaging for XRT with a focus on uh, nodal staging. And the problem arises embryology of these systems. So in this particular coronal uh, sketch that one of our residents did for us, uh, you can see the rectum up here. And all of the vascular and lymphatic drainage of the rectum, of course, goes uh, up along the superior um, hemorrhoidals and uh, into the IMV, uh, IMA distribution. So we expect any lesions that are up here that are contained within the rectum to be draining in that uh, fashion. Once you get out to the peritoneum, the story changes. Now, as we get into the low rectum, once we get below the peritoneal reflection, things get a little more complicated because all of this tissue in here, including the mesorectal fat, embryologically doesn't drain in that same pathway. And this is when you start to get a goblet-shaped area of interstitial tissue that drains um, up into the internal iliac vasculature. And I think that involvement of those areas is where we start to get concerns about internal iliac nodal distribution, obturator nodes, presacral nodes, things like that. Um, as we come down to the anus, it becomes even more challenging because you've got uh, this kind of rectal origin layer coming all the way down um, as the internal sphincter you have immediately next to it a, an interstitial layer that drains into this internal iliac distribution, and then you've got the skin that drains via the uh, like femoral cutaneous distribution up to the inguinal nodes and such. So I think the anatomic origin of it makes sense as long as you have a cancer that's contained, but once the cancer starts to cross boundaries, uh, it seems to be a bit of a, a risk. Right. So I, I, I think the main issue is that this is anal cancer, anal adeno may have a different spread than anal squamous cell in terms of where, where they go in the lymph nodes. But I think what's happening is that we're, uh, and this is probably, I think in, you'll talk about it, but the, one of the papers said 
if it's if you look at the histology and it's poorly differentiated, it's probably positive. If it's well differentiated, it's probably negative, which is kind of a strange way of, of judging whether a node is positive or not. But the, I think if you have a mid-rectal cancer, the issue is when you have an enlarged uh, iliac node, that's, I think, a little bit more of a problem for us surgeons to say, is that positive or not? And, and sometimes when you have a T1 lesion, it means the difference between chemoradiation and, 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 and chemotherapy afterwards versus none. So, so this was another um, paper out of Japan that I think was interesting in that their technique, as you were saying, is fairly dramatically different than ours. They took 448 patients with low rectal cancer, and 322 of them went to this extended surgery with lateral dissection. So they take out a bunch of nodes that, as I understand it, we don't take out right. regularly. Um, so out of all those people with Duke C, meaning node-positive um, disease, 27% uh, of them had, quote-unquote, lateral metastasis, meaning spread out to these uh, lymph nodes that live in the internal iliac distribution broadly. Uh, so this doesn't answer the question of what that percentage is in the total population of people with uh, rectal cancer who presents, but certainly among those with nodal disease, it's a pretty common cytometastasis. And this, again, these are lower rectal cancers. Uh, they don't, it's not really clear where they're going to be relative to the variety of landmarks that we discussed. But certainly it's common enough that I think for us to outright exclude the possibility of uh, internal iliac nodal spread would be uh, challenging. Yeah. So I think it came to consensus to give her long course chemo radiation. She'll need an APR. Um, one of the options was, well, let's do short course and then do an APR because then we wouldn't, we could then actually sample the nodes and know for sure. So Michael, why don't you give us a little bit of your thoughts and philosophy about the imaging for uh, lymph nodes in the pelvis in a patient with rectal cancer. Sure. So I think that uh, the imaging of lymph nodes in rectal cancer is one of the biggest challenges that we have um, in this area. And the fundamental problem is that the TNM system for nodal staging for uh, colorectal cancer was developed based on pathology data when you already had the lymph node um, out and you could look whether or not it was involved. And then they uh, correlated that with outcome. Uh, imaging was not a factor in that initial decision. Imaging instead was kind of strapped on once you already had a nodal staging system. Imaging now is used to try to predict the pathological nodal stage and was never really involved in the initial determination of what was detectable by imaging. At the current time, we use uh, both CT and MRI uh, commonly in this situation. CT is often the first-line imaging because patients present with um, symptoms or they have a colonoscopy and are sent for staging. Uh, and CT is very useful for looking at uh, the broad scope of disease uh, throughout the body and the lungs and the abdomen and such. It's not very good for looking at the, the primary tumor, T-stage, uh, and it's insensitive for the fine details of smaller lymph nodes in that area. MRI is the mainstay of rectal cancer imaging, both for the primary tumor and for regional nodal disease in the pelvis. When we're looking at an MRI, uh, particularly for the nodal stage, uh, the places that we're looking are going to be um, in the regional nodes. So in the mesorectum, uh, in the area that's going to be connecting that portion of the, the rectum up into the mesenteric um, vessels in the abdomen, we're also going to be looking 
uh, at the pelvic sidewalls, in particular at the internal iliac lymph node chain, uh, which is still going to be regional disease for rectal cancer. And then in patients who have relatively low cancers, we're going to also be focusing out in the inguinal nodal stations because of the potential for dissemination in that pathway in much the same way that anal cancers disseminate in that pathway. So when you talked about the internal iliac nodes, I think that's where the surgeons seem to have an issue with the imaging because there is no direct lymphatic jump across the mesorectum to the iliacs. They either have to go up the inferior mesenteric artery chain following the, the vein and artery and then retrograde go down into the iliacs or the cells have to go down, what Bill Hill called the zone of downward spread, they have to go down the mesorectum and then connect up with the portosystemic uh, junction in and around the anus. And we've seen with lymph nodes um, taken out with just surgery alone that they tend not to migrate, the disease tends not to migrate really more than about three centimeters, at the very most four centimeters below the cancer. So how can we reconcile, let's say, a mid-rectal cancer with, let's say, a one centimeter node right in the mesorectum, and then this, on, perhaps on the other side of the pelvis, this eight millimeter node in the internal uh, uh, iliac chain, when just anatomically it's nearly impossible for that cancer to jump across to that area? Sure. So I think that there are um, two parts of this. Uh, the first one is that we observe this happening in some people with uh, mid-rectal cancers. And once we have that part where we've observed it happening, we have to try to figure out um, why it happens. Uh, and we'd previously uh, discussed uh, one paper that uh, looked very early on at the patterns of lymphatic spread of uh, tumor. And in that particular paper, uh, they found that for the most part, as you've said, uh, tumor deposits in lymph nodes will be seen um, in the mesorectum uh, and upstream uh, spreading centrally uh, towards the root of the mesentery. Uh, it was only in the few subjects who had uh, lymphatic obstruction in that pathway where they actually observed uh, nodal spread uh, peripherally. Uh, and so the suggestion from that particular piece of work was that it was only in this case where you had lymphatic obstruction to the low resistance proximal route in which you had migration across the anatomic boundaries. Probably what's happening is there's tumor that's making it out to the mesorectal fascia, and um, at that point it enters the internal iliac uh, nodal distribution. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably why we're seeing that in that handful of patients. Yeah, I just think anatomically there is there's a membrane on the uh, what called the mesorectal fascia, and then there's a membrane called the pelvirectal fascia, mm -hmm. and there's a potential space in there, and there is really no uh, lymphatic or artery or anything jumping across except down at the middle rectal stalk, which is about two thirds of the way down the rectum. So I, I think that it's uh, with a very advanced cancers, uh, you can, I think, reconcile that anatomical kind of an anomaly. But I, it, I think it would, it's the incidence of it seems it gets called all the time. Uh, and then you're, I think, as a clinician, you're struggling to say, well, do we go after it surgically? Uh, is it positive so that post 
uh, chemo radiation surgery that it influences your your decision to give uh, more or more or less chemotherapy. So, Jeff, you, here you are. You have a patient that has, let's say, a T3N1 on the pre-op imaging and as well as an enlarged iliac lymph node, maybe about 8 millimeters, not clearly 2 centimeters, but not also that 5 millimeter one. Yeah, the surgery is done and it comes back T2N0 post chemo radiation with 30 negative lymph nodes. So uh, what do you do? Yeah, so, you know, the, the issue, and almost regardless of where the location those are, is, you know, we know that um, with imaging there's going to be um, over calling of nodes and under calling, right? And so from the large German trial, it's about 10% in each direction. Um, as Michael pointed out, all the initial staging was done prior to any treatment, and similarly our decisions regarding therapy or the sequence of therapy for rectal cancer where there was a sandwiching of chemo, chemo RT, and chemo was all without preoperative therapy. You know, whether to give, and now that we do preoperative therapy routinely, um, the decision of regarding further chemotherapy is really extrapolating from that data, and we rely on the clinical diagnosis. So, you know, those patients I would still give chemotherapy as if they were node positive because it always raised the question, are they someone who really was node positive that was treated very successfully with chemo radiation? And you can argue that means they have sensitivity to treatment and the reason we give the chemo is for the concern of micrometastases outside the local area, which gets some treatment with just however you do it continuous infusion 5-FU or an oral uh, capecitabine, but not clear that's adequate enough to deal with micrometastases. Um, so for those patients, I, you know, from, you know, I think it's still a discussion with a patient, but it's, it's clinically you think you have to consider them stage 3, knowing that you're going to overcall some, and knowing that even if, you know, the we know that even if you don't give any therapy to these patients, there's a cure rate with surgery alone. So we treat a lot of patients who don't need it, and then we also treat patients who don't benefit. And it's a group of 15 to 20 or so, the in-between, that benefit. But how much of the 15, what those 15 or 20 exactly need is not so clear. What's, what's amazing about this topic is that uh, this topic was thought about and discussed in the 1930s. Um, Michael was referring to a, a paper by Gabriel from St. Mark's, and they had beautiful anatomical drawings of all the pathological specimens and the tracks of the lymph nodes and lymph node, um, uh, the, the lymph nodes and also the lymphatics between the lymph nodes and the primary. So it, it's it's been a topic for almost 80 years uh, where we've been trying to sort out the direction. And it was clearer back then, it seems, than it is now because they didn't have the imaging that we had. And people didn't go and skeletonize and cherry-pick the internal iliac artery nodes at that time unless they were huge. Uh, and so it's we really don't know what the status of they were back then. Uh, but it seemed that if you cleared out the rectum and the mesorectum, the patients did well. 
and you left those alone, and there was not other therapy. So I can. That's the. Uh, it's the conundrum is not in the mesorectal node. It's in the. It's in the internal iliac nodes. And then what about the very distal rectal cancers? Uh, where do you, you said you look at the inguinal region, but uh, are there other nodal groups that are are particularly sensitive to uh, being imaged? And also, is there a size at which that you know it's definitely uh, positive on, let's say, these um, obturator nodes or something like that for the low rectal cancers? Sure. So there's a, a pretty striking difference between the uh, definition of regional nodes for rectal cancers and for uh, anal cancers in the current uh, TNM systems. And we already talked about the rectal cancers, but for anal cancer, uh, in addition to the mesorectum, we also have, and the internal iliac uh, nodal stations, we also have presacral nodes, we have obturator nodes, we have femoral and inguinal nodes, and we have the external iliac nodes that are all considered uh, regional lymph nodes for anal cancer. This really reflects uh, the different lymphatic drainage for the perineum and uh, perineal skin as opposed to the uh, internal mesorectum uh, as is exposed to um, rectal cancer. So when we have these rectal adenocarcinomas that are very low and may directly involve the anal sphincter and cross into those planes, uh, we have generally chosen to uh, look very carefully at the entirety of the anal cancer distribution under the theory that anatomically, if that rectal cancer breaches into the same anatomic spaces as an anal cancer, uh, that it may spread regionally in the same way that an anal cancer would. So we certainly have observed very low rectal cancers that have spread to inguinal lymph nodes or to external iliac lymph nodes to obturator lymph nodes uh, and sometimes those are uh, being managed uh, as regional uh, sites of disease uh, with radiotherapy and chemotherapy uh, in an attempt to try to get the same kinds of positive response rates that we sometimes do with anal cancer. So to go ahead. Uh, so you know a little bit along that line and, and, and you know people listening probably have various modalities they can do. So we haven't really talked about endoscopic ultrasound, so I think it's a question really for both of you because often the surgeon or, or a gastroenterologist do an endoscopic ultrasound. How do you resolve if you have the opportunity to both, which one you should do? And, and we also sometimes get patients where we get differing results. And how do we resolve what to do with, with one showing they should go right to surgery and one suggesting preoperative therapy may be important? Uh, so this is a, a very important issue with both the T-staging and the N-staging. Uh, T-staging in some ways is more straightforward in that MRI is the mainstay of T-staging for uh, rectal cancers. Uh, we're really looking for depth of invasion there. MRI is most able to uh, distinguish between uh, an early T1, T2 cancer that hasn't involved the muscularis propria uh, to any appreciable extent. Uh, versus one that has grossly extended out into the mesorectal um, fat. Uh, the intersection between those two is a gray zone, and pathologically the difference between an advanced T2 and an early T3 is just one cell thickness. Uh, MRI is not going to be able to resolve that kind of difference uh, ever. It's just too fine of a, a distinction. So 
Uh, I think the goal for preoperative MRI is really to try to sort people into the bins of definitely advanced in the T3 and T4 um, bin and uh, not definitely advanced in the T1, T2 bin. When we see people who are very close to that line between T2 and T3, I think endorectal ultrasound is uh, an ideal modality to look at that because it has greater spatial resolution. It can really uh, tighten up that gray band between T2 and T3 to a much better extent than MRI is currently capable of doing. Uh, there are still going to be cases that are too fine a distinction even for endorectal ultrasound, but I think that's the right way to go when you have a, a close call between an advanced T2 and an early T3. When it comes to nodal disease, um, it's a much different question. And I think for nodal disease, the issue that the nodal staging system was built from pathology really is a, a huge problem for MRI. So for example, we know that about half of the nodes that will be involved in pathology are less than five millimeters in size, and half will be larger than five millimeters in size. So using size alone uh, of any reasonable choice, you know, five millimeters, eight millimeters, these sizes are used at different centers, you know that you're going to miss at least half of the nodal metastases if you do that. So that's not sufficient. Uh, you can bring in morphology, where you look at the shape of uh, the lymph node. If you see a lymph node that is a normal kidney beam shaped and has a nice homogeneous cortex, that's a positive sign. And uh, by and large, nodes that have that nice normal morphology, uh, regardless of their particular size, are going to be benign. If you have very abnormal morphologies where you see speculation, you see uh, abnormal patterns of enhancement where you're enhancing homogeneously or you have irregular areas of enhancement, those lymph nodes are very likely to be pathologically involved again, regardless of their size. And so it's probably in the combination of looking for very grossly enlarged lymph nodes and morphologically abnormal lymph nodes that we're going to optimize the yield of, optimize the accuracy of our assessment of are there pathologically involved lymph nodes or not. So two things. One for local excision decision-making. It Actually, you have to determine between T1 and T2. And... I find MRI is um, not very helpful. Sometimes you can put a coil in for extra resolution, but if it's still equivocal, you go and you get endorectal ultrasound. And the reason is is that if you have just a T1, you can just go right to surgery. If you have a T2 and 0, you uh, pa patients can get pre-op chemo radiation and then the local excision. So it changes the treatment and the treatment sequence uh, immensely. I think the other thing is that um, it's comfortable for both, I think, the medical oncologist, radiation therapist, and surgeon when an MRI is negative, where there's no lymph node seen, it's truly negative. Uh, is that is that a correct assumption that that if you see maybe small lymph nodes, one thing, but there are some MRIs that come back just no lymph nodes seen, and that to me is very comforting that it is truly a true negative and not necessarily a false negative. You're not Marios. No lymph nodes whatsoever. Uh, again, we do have the issue that about half of pathologically involved lymph nodes are still going to measure less than 5 millimeters in size. Uh, nonetheless, I think if you have a completely negative scan, that's a, a good negative predictive value. Yeah. 
So we'll wrap it up. Michael, is there anything new coming down the pike that will help you in enhancing either positively or, or cancer-involved lymph nodes versus negative lymph nodes? Are there new infusions or agents that are going to be helpful? Well, one of the areas of research over the last uh, now 10 to 15 years uh, was with the use of uh, superparamagnetic iron oxide particles. Um, it's essentially very fine rust particles, if you will. And uh, these particles are taken up uh, in the lymph nodes by the normal uh, macrophages, and they cause suppression of the signal in those lymph nodes. Uh, the idea with using this was that if you have tumor cells occupying the lymph node, they won't take up these particles, and so you'll still see them. Uh, it was somewhat effective in some of the early publications, uh, but there are some problems with allergic reactions to some of this. And the manufacturer uh, that had been producing them at the time uh, no longer makes them available. So we actually can't get access um, to those particles that were used. Uh, there are some centers that use uh, infusions of an alternative agent, uh, I believe for Oxymol, uh, which is an agent that's typically used for iron supplementation. Uh, but again, this has been limited by an extremely high rate of anaphylaxis to infusions. And obviously, anaphylaxis is not something that we want to introduce as a routine part of our preoperative assessments. Uh, so for now, I think there's a, a big question mark there, and we would love to be able to improve this. Um, there have been other areas of work in the use of diffusion-weighted imaging and perfusion imaging uh, to try to improve this, but uh, to date, there's not definitive data showing that these can improve our assessment of uh, nodal disease in rectal cancer. Well, that's great. Well, thank you. Um, and if you um, have any questions about uh, imaging, just uh, let us know. And thank you very much, Michael, and thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you.